This week, we have a conversation on the US 2020 presidential elections, comparing Donald Trump and Joe Biden on their economic, health, and immigration policies, as well as comparing the two individuals for who they actually are, not their administration, but their leadership and presidential qualities. We are joined by co-founders of MUN Line, Samuel from Melbourne, Australia, Anam from Halifax, Canada, Sophia from Tennessee, USA, and Solomon from Hong Kong, as well as special guest Caroline Kush from Tennessee, USA. Visit munline.org to see what we do and join us. Let's start with the economy. The American economy has been going through a recession for the past three months as a result of COVID-19. Millions of Americans are unemployed. They need jobs. They need a president who can deliver on jobs as well as the economy. Who should these Americans vote for as well as other Americans who have had their income slashed and jobs affected by the pandemic? Right. Uh, well, I'll start us off. I mean, Trump's recently been celebrating the stronger than expected U.S. unemployment figures. And this has been quite characteristic of his campaign, where his main focus is the economy, of course. Um, with Biden, there's, there's a very different approach where he's prioritizing increasing federal spending on creating a sort of task force of what he tells 100,000 uh, individuals to work on coronavirus tracing, whereas Trump really just wants to open the economy. And certainly historically, the economic performance ha um, has had a significant impact on the incumbent president's re-election chance. But given that it's uh, the current coronavirus situation is basically unprecedented, um, it would be very hard to judge Trump solely on the economic performance. I think many voters understand that until uh, the coronavirus situation eases, that economic performance won't recover necessarily. Yeah, Solomon, I understand what you're saying, but I think that we can obviously look at Trump's economic performance from before the coronavirus crisis, wherein he didn't manage to make the economy better, but he managed to make it not go into recession. So a lot of the economic benefits that Americans have been reaping over these past three years or past four years uh, under the Trump administration has often been credited to Trump, but I don't think that we should be crediting it towards Trump because America has been on the same growth rate as it was in 2016. And so when we look at coronavirus and how it's impacted the economy, we should think that Trump won't be able to help the economy as far as he's been able to help the economy in the past. And that's where Biden is different, I think. I think that Biden wanting to focus on middle-class America and rejuvenating middle-class America will definitely play into how voters think about the elections coming up. I would definitely agree with you there, Sophia, about the importance on focusing on the middle class. The coronavirus pandemic has severely affected much of the service-based economy within the United States, which employ employs a large majority of middle-class voters within America. 
So if we were going to see any real support or any real change for the middle class, I would agree that the coronavirus is a great place to start if we want to see long-term policy change. And I think Biden and his focus on the middle class, we could see that start. So there's a lot of emphasis around this concept that we should be focusing towards the middle class. We have to assume, though, that there is still a middle class that people are wanting to be focusing towards. And in America, the middle class is shrinking, but it's been relatively well established that the middle class in America has been has been shrinking. Getting back more on point, though, I think one of Trump's greater accomplishments is that he's been able to keep the economy growing despite the fact that realistically, and I think that this is pretty undisputed, that the economy has arguably been going for the longest period of economic growth. Generally speaking, we say that you are looking at a recession or an economic dip once every seven years. So if we say that the GFC was that last dip, so we're saying 2007, 2008, uh, we were we were due for one in 2014, 2015. The fact that he was able to take it to 2020 and be caused by a factor that was, quite frankly, outside of his control. It was solely the Chinese's fault for uh, engaging in um, this pandemic uh, is something that is commended. Um, whether he is going to be better um, in terms of it going forward compared to a Biden administration, I think realistically uh, it's six uh, sorry, it's 12 of one and a dozen of the other, quite frankly. Um, I've said this before and I'll say it again. This election is between someone who is an old school Democrat who has sexual uh, harassment allegations against them or an old school Democrat who has sexual harassment allegations against them. There's not really much substantively, apart possibly from a couple of nuances, particularly when it comes to the relationship with China, that actually is different um, in their policy agenda and their policy objectives. So I think that there is a lot to be said about how Trump has successfully navigated up until corona. Um, I think though then the question about how to maintain post-corona is a different conversation. So one key part of any economic policy is job retainment. And this is an area I sense both candidates haven't placed enough emphasis on. The only presidential candidate who is looking forward into the depths of automation and how that will affect middle-class America, in my opinion, was Andrew Yang, with his policies on human-centred capitalism as well as the freedom dividend. Right, right now, millions of Americans are losing their jobs, so it's understandable that both nominees are focusing on job procurement. Though I wanted to ask the question of how both candidates fare with the future and how they will lay the foundations for a successful job market in 20 years. I think this is something where there is significant... I do somewhat agree with you, Matt. Um, I think Andrew Yang's campaign, obviously, whilst it fell, I think was a really interesting campaign from a policy perspective and I think was, on both sides of the House, the first candidate to really grapple with some of these issues. The way that we're going to be thinking about a number of different things, such as, obviously, employment, particularly with automation, but also property rights, um, is going to significantly change, as well as the concentration of power that we see. And look, obviously, I think it's well established I sit on the right on most issues, but something I do agree with um, with Elizabeth Warren on, actually, is the fact that uh, companies such as Facebook uh, and Google probably have too much power within the marketplace. Um, you know, when three of the five top applications on the Android App Store are from the same company, that being Facebook, through Facebook, Messenger, and Instagram. It says a lot about the concentration of power that one company has 
So in addition, obviously, Google has their reach uh, in a number of different platforms. So I, I think there's a lot to be said about the fact that the government, ha the US government on both sides, um, and I know that um, Trump is currently going through an investigation of Google. Um, I know that Obama also did an investigation of Google, but they ultimately settled the matter uh, as directed by the Department of, well, directed to the Department of Justice by those presidencies, um, do really need to grapple those issues. I also want to mention property rights as well. You know, in the past, it used to be a case where if you bought a good, you owned that good. So if you bought a printer, you owned that printer. If you wanted to tinker with that printer, you could tinker with that printer. Another good example, indeed a really relevant example, um, is tractors. So for tractors, for example, um, you know, it used to be a case you, you just buy the tractor and you would just tinker with it where necessary. You do your own repairs, etc. Now it's getting to a case where the idea of a good and service is becoming conflated because companies such as John Deere will impose their own technology into these um, into these tractors, for example. And, you know, John Deere will say, oh, this is to, you know, help provide some new features or whatnot. But what it does is that if you don't go to a John Deere authorised repair service centre, um, they can lock you out of your own tractor. And this is something that we're going to see a lot more is the conflict, particularly with the Internet of Things, uh, this conflating of what is a good and what is a service kind of being a lot more blurred. And so, and therefore, it's really going to strongly affect property rights uh, and things that you are able to do. And that's kind of where thing, you know, movements like the right to repair coming, for example. So I think that's something that no party, and I don't even think Andrew Yang really effectively did. Um, and I think it's something that really has to be considered now by policymakers. I also think that point is really interesting, what you made about the tractor. I guess if we look at the farm sector, coming from a rural area myself, we see major agribusiness companies like Monsanto making it where you have to plant their own seed. And then by the end of the harvesting season, what you did not use, you have to return. So I think that's a very interesting take on property rights and what we're able to do in relation to goods and services. But kind of linking back to the original subject of jobs, something that I really think is interesting, while it is not necessarily tied into coronavirus, is Joe Biden's plan to create 10 million jobs in a clean energy sector, which while we can see as a presidential promise and a big dream aspiration that could not come to fruition, I think it adds an interesting perspective both on revamping our job market to something that is more sustainable, not just for the economy, but for the entire planet and future, alongside looking at differences between Biden and Trump, especially when it comes to climate denialism. I mean, when you think about it, Donald Trump won the 2016 presidential elections because he got the support of blue collar workers. Now, Andrew Yang was the only person to really think about how automation really caused a lot of job losses. And if he were to be the presidential candidate, it would have been very interesting to see how he would have been against Trump. But he was, in, in another word, a rev more revolutionary character for the Democrats. It would have been really interesting to see how things would have been going on. I mean, some of his ideas, for instance, the freedom dividend that he proposed about um, a monthly UBI for $1,000 for every American adult. These were things that we really didn't see. And he did um, initially support a Medicare for all, which was something that was 
similar to Obamacare, but it was different in the sense that it had a private health insurance. So honestly, Andrew Yang would have been a really good candidate compared to Joe Biden. But to be fair, I absolutely agree with Samuel on the basis that there isn't really much of a difference when it comes to Trump and Biden, except the fact that Trump would probably go on a more protectionist area and put on America first. So the idea of freedom dividend uh, is nothing new, actually. In fact, um, it has been around, I think, particularly around the 60s and 70s. Indeed, Milton Friedman, who is the father of um, neoliberalism policies and kind of a strong, a strong, you know, basis for which uh, readers of the right these day, um, to this day uh, continue to read into his work, um, did support a universal basic income. Um, so, the, so the idea of a UBI is obviously fell out of favour and Andrew Yang has kind of brought it back up and, is, and I think there is a strong basis for it. I think though that the problem for Yang's presidency, and obviously this is quite a bit late um, into the picture, is that the Democrat Party has a few bases of support. So Hollywood is a base of support and you generally get New York, particularly Wall Street, as a base of support. You're also starting to see Silicon Valley become a base of support for the Democrat Party and then the traditional union movement. He was never going to get um, New York and he was never going to get the union movement. He was never going to get Hollywood because he was never part of the establishment. And he rallied against kind of the tech monopoly that we see today, which made it really difficult for him to be able to get Silicon Valley on board on his campaign. So his campaign was really interesting. And I think um, I would like to see him continue in political debate and in the political arena. Um, was probably never going to get off the ground. And I mean, to be fair, when, when we say the word part of the establishment, that just brings in a new different topic. Donald Trump was someone who was absolutely, back in 2016, someone who just joined the po political arena. He was someone who was new, uh, someone who had no political experience in the past. And that just made things really different. It would have been nice to see someone a more fresh candidate for the Democrats as opposed to a more traditional perspective. It would have changed a lot of the dynamics that are going that's going on right now. Uh, Donald Trump has actually run for president before 2016. He uh, ran in 2000, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was called the Reform Party. Uh, but if you also look at Trump's um, voting, well, not voting record, but membership record, he's been a flip-flopper. He's been a Democrat, then he's been a Republican, then he went on his own as an independent, then went to the Reform Party, then became a Democrat, and then became ultimately a Republican when it was politically convenient to do so. Um, to call him a political outsider, I think is, I mean, he sees himself as a political outsider, but to call him that is, I think, a bit wrong. Um, the amount of deals that he would have had to have made, particularly in New York, um, means that it's basically impossible to call him anything but a political outsider. He has been part of the establishment um, for quite some time now, whether he, has been accepted by the, whether he was accepted or not by the establishment. That's a very different debate, um, and that gives him where he gets his credence to becoming an outsider. But he has he has at least had significant contact with the establishment for quite some time. So I think uh, Simon brings in an interesting point of sort of Donald Trump's record of being quite flip flop on a lot of issues. Um, when we look at his stance on abortion before he ran for president he was all for abortion he 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 said it publicly however then when he realized that he needed christians and strong catholics to elect he changed his mind and went down the anti-abortion route and we also look at this generally when we 
when we take a look at Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, which is actually quite uh, populist. However, that contrasts with a lot of his uh, quite, as Anand pointed out, protectionist policies that were put in place in that had arguably uh, increased the economic divide in the United States. So I'm interested to see what people would see that voters could have put any faith into Donald Trump's ability to really support the middle class. And we have touched on this before, but I would like to go again and how they can support the middle class, but more importantly, uh, uh, workers, uh, because that is somewhere where where Joe Biden is putting a lot of emphasis on his campaign, which is generally supported by uh, middle class. You know, Matthew, I think that a lot of people are currently looking at the coronavirus crisis and trying to see what Donald Trump has done with it. You know, he's been rather reckless with testing and with reopening the economy quite early. And I think that that's really reflected on his reputation as president. On the other hand, you have Joe Biden, who's seen as a return to normalcy. I don't think that it actually matters what their economic policies are right now, but the only thing that does matter is how voters view them. So as long as voters have this perception of Biden as a return to the Obama administration and a return to economic growth, then it doesn't matter that he might not have the perfect plan, right? I think that if we're talking about creating jobs, then Donald Trump is definitely seen as someone who's been rather wishy-washy and reckless. Um, He doesn't have a defined plan. He often goes back on his word, goes back on it again. And as you said earlier, Matthew, he's very um, flip-flop about it. And I think that that's been playing into voters' perceptions of him and whether they'll actually vote for him in the upcoming elections. Well, fundamentally, you've got two establish, uh, establishmentists who have very dubious ties to the financial sector and the establishment. I mean, e- even if you look at Joe Biden, I mean, back back in the 1980s, 1990s, he was largely responsible for the current uh, student debt crisis. And he, he supported legislation that would make it harder for students who default on student loans to receive government assistance. And he, acti- he was actively taking donations and supporting the interests of the credit loan companies who who are often described as predatory when they are offering loans to low and mid-income students. And certainly his dubious ties with um, with Wall Street, including supporting bailing them out, um, has has really hurt his image as, as a champion for the middle class. I mean, um, I believe one political pundit basically summarized it as he takes donations from the middle class, then votes at their expense. Yeah, I hear you, Solomon. And I'm actually really interested in seeing if Democrats can overcome this view of Biden as one of the worst Democratic candidates they've ever had and manage to get him into office. Can Democrats come together and try to put a Democrat back in office, even though they're already split over him? I'm really interested in seeing your opinions on this. I mean, this this to me screams desperation from the Democratic Party just to try and get someone into office. I mean, in 2016, they tried with Clinton, who's part of the establishment, has a, a, has a long list of experience in political offices, has 
a questionable personal character. It didn't work in 2016, and I really don't see how it's going to work in 2020. Frankly, the the young uh, the young young voter base within the Democrats are probably very frustrated that a lot of other good candidates, such as Andrew Yang, were sidelined from the conversation. I mean, even Bernie Sanders, he enjoyed um, large amounts of support from uh, the more the more left leaning parts of the Democratic Party, and when you've got Trump and um, Biden, who are both realistically quite similar, it becomes very hard to just justify to those voters to go to vote for either one. And it becomes more an issue of strategic voting, of who they dislike less rather than who they truly support. And that's when you really start to lose voter enthusiasm and create voter disenfranchisement. I mean, if you look in 2016, Clinton's turnout was very disappointing in key swing states. I mean, yes, Biden has promised to uh, win back uh, key states such as Pennsylvania and Michigan. But right now, I really don't see how he's going to get his voter base to come out and support him. It's a huge gamble, quite frankly. So I don't know if you've probably seen some of the graphs that were going around, um, the epidemiology graphs that were going around when people were trying to flatten the curve. In that you can either basically have a huge spike now and then everyone gets it and you go on in life in about three to six months, but there will be some deaths, or you can flatten the curve. Most countries have opted to flatten the curve. I think the US kind of tried to flatten the curve and then kind of not really. So then the strategy now, and the only way you can sell the strategy now is that they're just going to accept the spikes uh, and then move on with the hope that by the time we get to October, and I use October um, because of the fact that October surprise is always a thing, in US presidential elections, get to October and coronavirus becomes a secondary issue compared to the economy, for which it's fair to say that, look, if we're saying that both people are kind of the same on these things or are very similar on these things, then you favour the incumbent, which means you would then favour Trump. So from a political strategy perspective, it is a huge gamble um, that, quite frankly, is a gamble that mostly appeases to his base of people who love freedom, who don't want... Um, their rights taken away from them who want to be able to go out um, and be able to continue living normally. It's going to be an interesting question as to whether it's going to work or not. So I think Samuel brings in an interesting notion of coronavirus and how will that affect the public's perception of a candidate. Now, I would ask whether or not Donald Trump's bad handling and extremely bad handling, in my opinion, of the coronavirus and the, and the, and the public's bad perception of him because of it will prevail until november whenever when when both when both candidates go face to face in online debates and maybe more issues such as the economy will come to face and whether or not donald trump's mishandling will prevail and will be the domineering reason why why the american electorate will not vote for donald trump i think that's oh, i think that's a big question of what if and what is going to happen and what we are going to see going into November. Will we see another massive spike? Will we see a larger increase of deaths from the number we already have? I would make the point that come November, I do not think the majority of the American public is going to care about the policy decisions that Donald Trump made in regards to the coronavirus. I think that is just... While it is important and it definitely affected the way that America handled the crisis, it is, to the average person, a bit of policy minutiae. They will focus on their 
two months that they spent in quarantine rather than the fact that the Trump administration dropped the ball on testing beginning going into the virus virus pandemic. And there were also questions about working with the World Health Organization alongside the many missteps that were made by Trump in the entire coronavirus task force response. I think what Caroline mentioned there is largely accurate. Trump made an arse of coronavirus in the United States, but when we look to how Trump's campaign is dealing with that, Trump is constantly shifting the blame. He is shifting the blame to China as well as the World Health Organization and more largely the United Nations. When we look at China, however, his administration's his, his administration's blame on the Chinese government aligns well with his economic strategy of putting America first in trade deals. Um, as Anam pointed out, Trump is constantly restructuring trade deals that sees, at least in his mind, putting America at the forefront of global trade. For example, he scrapped NAFTA and replaced it with the U.S. Uh, Mexico. Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA, placed China placed uh, tariffs in China, which led to a, tra- a trade war, which has since settled. Renegotiating trade deals that puts America first was a hallmark of his 2016 campaign. He constantly blamed Ob- the Obama administration of going easy on the likes of China, but especially in the Middle East, where Trump thought America was being exploited by all agreements made by Obama. What I'm interested in knowing is if American voters will see Biden as they saw him. Hillary in 2016 as a soft, easygoing candidate who does does very little on putting America at the centre of importance in international trade as well as more generally foreign policy because because Trump won the 2016 election partly because of that sort of do-nothing Democrat notion that we see him use often today. Trump's biggest policy success and I think something that is going to be a big factor that could potentially become a big factor in the next election um, is the fact that he's been the first president to really stand up, or the first world leader, really, to stand up to China. You know, I think if you cast your mind back to 2016, the people who were, you know, concerned about China's role in the world and how they were starting to infiltrate uh, the state, um, depending particularly on where you are, it's a bit more of a concern in Australia compared to um, other countries on that we have represented here. Um, it was a bit of a fringe issue. Now it's the mo- one of the most forefront issues uh, in foreign policy is how do we deal with Trump because, uh, sorry, how do we deal with China because no one really properly dealt with the rise and the appeasement strategy that was seen didn't really work. So Trump, one of Trump's biggest successes, particularly on foreign policy, is standing up to China. Um, now, how he's gone about that and particularly, you know, some of the nuances that he's done are a little bit questionable. I think the trade tariffs were necessary uh, because that is showing we're trying, uh, targeting where China has a bit more of a competitive advantage. However, there's obviously ways that he could have done it. And, you know, creating policy by Twitter is an interesting way of creating policy, to say the least. I think when we get to this, where I lose it a bit, though, is when Trump decides to um, put on tariffs um, or not engage in free trade with his allies, such as Canada, such as Australia, such as the EU, to a lesser extent, even the European Union. I want to put the European Union to a side. When they are proposing, you know, um, tariffs on aluminum uh, to countries such as Australia and Canada, that is a bit of a problem because they, you know, they are important geopolitically as well as for trading purposes. The European Union, the US has been in a trade war with the European Union since the 2000s. So for Trump, and it hasn't really formally been ever resolved, 
and it never really has been done in America's favor. So Trump is at the very least attempting a different direction, whether that's working or not is a very different debate. Um, and I would probably contend it's probably not working as well due to more of the um, diplomatic fallout, particularly with the European Union. But by the same token, it's at least positive that there is a different attempt being made rather than just doing the same old, same old and expecting to get a different result. I mean, to be quite frank, he has a very aggressive stance towards China. And I would disagree with the tariffs. Um, there could be other non-tariff approaches that Trump could have used as a protectionist approach. Um, tariffs have caused a significant amount of economic losses for both parties. And to be fair, when Trump tries to create jobs, we do know that tariffs indirectly do lead to job losses, but in different sectors. So yes, he it, it did protect the blue collar workers, but then it also stifled growth in other places. Like when you look at companies that really need raw materials, some of these are actually imported from China and that just raises costs and that, that has other economic um, effects. But to be fair, I absolutely agree with Samuel. One of his biggest successes is how he how he took a stance towards China, how he um, stood up to China, which when if you look at past presidents, they didn't really take that, that seriously. I do think that it's nice that Trump has taken a stance against China and try to, you know, keep America above all other countries. However, I do think that one thing that's interesting to note is that Trump's foreign policy, um, you know, his rhetoric against Chinese people, against Xi Jinping, and most recently against the Kung flu panda, um, has pr pretty heavily impacted the economy. You know, we see that Trump's very existence has created what people call the Trump effect, wherein, for example, let's look at like Chinese home buying of domestic houses. The growth rate for Chinese home buying of domestic houses has dropped so much due to anti-Chinese rhetoric and due to the Trump effect. You know, a lot of Chinese people are unsure of what will happen due to um, because of Trump's foreign policy remarks and his very creative, as Samuel said, um, way of presenting them. Um, because of this uncertainty, the economy in many sectors has been heavily impacted and people aren't sure what will happen next with such a volatile president. What do you guys think? I mean, compared to Trump, Biden seems much less authentic. I mean, at first he was criticized for not being tough enough on China. Then he switched his stance. And then later, um, some of his other support base criticized him for being too tough on China. So what you see is Biden as a candidate who can't really commit to a core trade policy. And in that sense, he's even more unpredictable compared to, say, Trump, whereas Trump at least there is some level of certainty that he is very aggressive towards China and demands more fair trade practices. I have a, just a quick question, almost kind of rhetorical, but their policies regarding the Belt and Road Initiative in China. Well, I have not specifically looked into what the candidates have tailored their platforms to. I think that is definitely something that we need to watch um, in China as they are expanding past their borders to create more spheres of influence across Southeast Asia and also pushing into Africa as well. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you 100% on that, Caroline. The One Bill, One China initiative um, is probably one of China's best ways 
of creating soft diplomacy. And that is a really dangerous thing for Western democracies. Um, so obviously, for example, now owning ports in Sri Lanka uh, as a way of example, um, and basically getting into certain to basically forcing a lot of, you know, lower socioeconomic countries into so much debt that they basically have to hand over the assets to China um, is really problematic from a national security perspective. It becomes really problematic, though, Caroline, uh, when Western countries sign on to One Belt, One Road initiatives. And I am biased in this um, to bring in the local, a local example for myself, Caroline. Uh, the state of Victoria in Australia, um, Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, has signed on to One Belt, One Road. And that is, quite frankly, one of the single most dangerous policies decisions ever made by a Premier of Victoria, by the, by the leader of the Victorian government. Um, it's basically going to put Victoria into a debt trap that it will never be able to come from. And assets in a first world country of Australia will be owned directly by the Chinese government. That is incredibly concerning, both for an Australian security perspective, but also internationally for Western democracies, um, because now they're not just focusing on, you know, the developing world. They're now able to infiltrate developed countries. And that should be ringing alarm bells for the European Union and for the United States. Well, certainly, yes, it should be ringing alarm bells. But the way Trump ha han is handling this seems uh, very troubling as well. I mean, he's criticizing his European and and South American allies for siding with China without proposing a, a stronger alternative. I mean, if you look historically, um, using the Soviet Union and China as a precedent, both sides would fund or offer aid towards um to try and court their allies, whereas Trump seems to be content just to criticize his allies and almost sort of bully uh, from the perspective of Britain. Let's use Huawei as an example to to sort of bully um, other governments into complying with uh, the US line in uh, banning the use of Huawei equipment. Of course, you, you see pushback in countries like Germany where they reject the security argument. And even in UK where they reject com a complete ban on Huawei instead opting to limit it to 35% of uh, the total infrastructure and no core components. Trump, Trump's uh, refusal to play by the um, sort of standard real politicking is very troubling in sort of establishing a network of countries against China, because of course China isn't just playing an economic game. They're using, e they're weaponizing economics as a political tool, as uh, Samu, you mentioned, to lure countries into debt traps. But when you look at those African countries or those struggling European countries, such as Italy, uh, their governments, uh, when they look at uh, Chinese assistance, what they see is an opportunity to grow their economy that other Western countries aren't willing to provide. I mean, the U.S. has has long been cutting aid to um, their allies. You've got Germany uh, in the European Union who's advocating for austerity. For countries like Greece, for Spain, for Italy, countries which are underperforming, you have to see it from their perspective that uh, the sort of aid which China is offering is very attractive to them. I think that for a lot of countries that, you know, rely on China, they really can't afford to get on China's bad side. And so they're being pressured into going along with the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, one of the interesting things with America is that America actually did try to counter the Belt and Road Initiative uh, by putting $60 billion into the uh, International Finance Development Corporation and trying to put that into the markets that the BRI initiative is going to target. Um, the issue with that is that while the Belt and Road Initiative has large long-term effects and reaches 
um, in reaches around the globe. The 60 billion um, that America has put in just doesn't do that. It does no more than simply secure labor and supplies from China. And um, it's not about loans at all. So I think that America has really failed in countering the Belt and Road Initiative, even though it's one of the only countries that possibly has the ability to do so. So yeah, so I think when we talk about China and China is generally their wrath on the world in general is increasing astronomically. Uh, even when we look at the South China Sea and what, what's the shenanigans that are happening over there, uh, it's actually quite concerning. And, and as myself in the European Union, now the European Union has extremely strong ties with 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 European uh, with, with with China. My own government in Ireland over only recently signed a major beef deal with China that will see uh, over a hundred million of beef exports per year going to China. So when 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 the governments and European Union and other collective organizations have to go and make a stance against China, they risk uh, deteriorating these trade deals that are so valuable to their economies. So it really is a, a quite a tricky uh, situation uh, for, for presidents and for governments. Though I think when we were to compare Donald Trump and Joe Biden's stance against China, I would have to agree with the comments made before that Donald Trump has put forward a more clear plan Maybe not so against China, but a more a greater stance against uh, greater stance against China's growing wrath, especially on the United States with the restructuring of many uh, trade treaties with China. Um, so I wanted to shift the conversation maybe away from the economy. We've talked about the economy a lot. Um, so we bring in another point, which is healthcare. Now the coronavirus pandemic has brought up a massive hole in American healthcare, in which a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of uh, Americans are are uninsured. They are unprotected. Um, American American uh, healthcare generally is quite a ripoff, in my opinion. Uh, a lot of drugs are extremely expensive, and when you compare them, the price of drugs in the European Union it is really quite farcical. And when you're comparing the two policies of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they differ in some respects however i think there is a big overlap when we talk about joe biden you know he wants to just expand obamacare but though when you bring in donald trump his general uh, practice of deregulation possibly might have a greater effect so i think we're going to as i'm interested to see what people think the two candidates response to healthcare and whether or not which they will they will resonate with voters I mean, to be fair, the American healthcare system was flawed to begin with. The question is, how much has Obamacare really helped? And what were the flaws with that? So in many cases, a lot of people have complained that Obamacare proved to be a little bit more expensive. And Trump's idea of deregulation could help. But the question is, to what degree are we talking about deregulation and how much of this has really worked? I mean, Trump has been trying to scrap Obamacare for over throughout his presidential years. And that is, to be fair, if you look at Joe Biden, he just wants to expand Obamacare. So there's a completely black and white um, difference to this. I, I personally feel that both of them don't really have the right approach to dealing with healthcare in the United States. They're not tackling the main issues like Matthew has pointed out, and that is the fact that the prices of a lot of drugs are just skyrocket compared to other countries. And these are things that really weren't tackled. And when it comes to healthcare, I feel like both parties don't really look at the main picture. 
I guess if we look at Trump's treatment and plans for the Affordable Care Act, we've already seen one part of the Affordable Care Act struck down, which is the um, penalization of not having an, any, any insurance plan. And from that point in the legislation, that is how they are trying to take down the entire Affordable Care Act as a way to get rid of it completely through the idea that the entire piece of legislation relies on that singular fact that a person can be punished for the fact that they do not have health care. And I think that is an interesting intersection of freedom when it comes to health care. While health care, in theory, is wonderful for everybody to have, people should also have the choice to not go down the route of insurance as they so wish. Though I also do think it is imperative that there is an option for everyone who wants it. And I think that's a policy that we saw in some of the more centrist Democrat candidates, such as Pete Buttigieg, during campaign leading up to our final two candidates. But I can also see, in compared to more extreme, not extreme, but Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's opinion of healthcare for our all, it can be seen as a compromise and not even democratic to many of the voting base of the Democratic Party. Well, you have to remember, Sophia, that the policy that Trump took to the 2016 election was repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And when the issue came up to the Republican-led House, the issue was repealed, but there was no agreement on replacing due to the different caucuses within the Republican Party who were proposing different types of solutions. And so Trump was not going to sign anything that didn't have the replacement to the repeal of the ACA. So I think that that's probably where that anger, anger stems from, is that we've kind of been left with Affordable Care Act because the Republican Party couldn't get their stuff together on working out what the best replacement policy is. Well, I think assuming that Biden will commit to uh, doubling down on uh, Obamacare itself is a very problematic argument. I mean, during Obama's administration, Biden was noted for continuously advocating to cut uh, Medicare and Social Security. I mean, I mean, uh, back in the 1990s, he was he was very against um, against attacking um, the sort of pharma industry and. If you look at the uh, recent stock prices of major pharmaceutical companies, they've actually risen after after people like Warren and Sanders have dropped out of the race. And I think that in itself speaks for how Biden will be unlikely to, uh, to be able to tackle the issue of healthcare for America. But this, of course, brings on to the wider issue of that healthcare as a debate in America hasn't really been done very well. I think a lot of Americans don't actually understand that there is no sort of European healthcare model. If you look at the Germans, they have a very different model from, say, the French and even in the United Kingdom, Scotland. They're doing their own thing with uh, NHS Scotland compared to um, the rest of the UK. And until we can have a serious um, debate and discussion on what type of universal healthcare we're actually going to implement, there's not really much point to just arguing about whether Obamacare is good or bad. Yeah, I think that's something we are going to see with whoever wins the presidency is there's not going to be a revolutionary change in healthcare. I think the wild card that does exist is seeing who Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate will be. And there has been 
throwing around of names like Elizabeth Warren. So if Joe Biden comes into office with a more progressive vice president, it is interesting to see how healthcare policy could be shaped by then. And also taking into account that Joe Biden is an older candidate. So I think another point we have to bring in when we're talking about healthcare in the United States, and something that is somewhat to some degree exclusive to the United States is the massive lobby Big Pharma has on Washington. And now, in my opinion, Big Pharma can never really go away. So it's really down to how the president can kind of work with Big Pharma companies to to provide the best healthcare for Americans. And now both candidates put forward very different ways of doing that. Donald Trump is more deregulation. Um, and so what argued that Joe Biden his expansion on the Obamacare and the failings of Obamacare in the past of tackling big pharma and generally not doing much because big pharma opposes quite a lot that would put them in any sort of financial detriment. I'm interested to see what people think is the best solution to accepting big pharma, but giving the best outcome for the for the average American and how to work with big pharma to provide good healthcare for Americans. In my opinion, people really shouldn't be looking to the federal government to introduce a universal health care. What they should be looking to is to going to the counties, going to this at the state level, because the United States is a very large country. It's very diverse. There is no one one size fits all strategy in terms of Medicare. Rural America is going to be very different from say, San Francisco or New York, those big cities. And to try to force one universal system over everything is never going to work because there's going to be too much opposition. What what we need in the United States is for is for democratically controlled states um, to have their vote voter bases push their local representatives to introduce solutions at local levels. Then that will serve as a model for nationwide to, to show that yes, universal healthcare can work on a small level. That's when that that's when we can really try and bring it nationwide. So I agree with you, Solomon, that it does need to come particularly from a state level. Where I disagree with you, though, is that a one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work. And I do accept, you know, there are going to be some policy elements where one-size-fits-all obviously won't work. But unfortunately, the nature of it is that asking for even a small constituency, well, even just like a really small state like Wyoming, to have a separate medical system to New York or to um a county in New York is quite frankly a bit illogical. And also it just doesn't get the economies of scale that America can leverage by the fact that they have 300 plus million people. What would be a smarter system, particularly for um, pharmaceutical goods, is to create a common market between the states, whereby saying all states will only buy this good by this manufacturer, you get access to 300 million people um, and you have to provide it at the cheapest possible price with the best safety precautions. Therefore, that inherently, because they've got access to a much larger market, it's inherently going to increase the attractiveness and therefore drive prices down uh, because there's more interest in supply. I think that's a more smarter way to go, uh, particularly when it comes to pharmaceutical goods. Well, yes, in theory, that would uh, getting economies of scale would be good, but in practice, there are there are state legislatures which will completely oppose this and try to tank this effort. And furthermore, if we look at how the COVID situation, I mean, states were competing with each other, out trying to outbid each other for equipment. And once you get into the hard times, it's very likely that state states and even counties are going to try and outbid each other for vital supplies, and the whole system breaks down. 
And if we look at, I mean, look at New York, where they tried to impose a tax on uh, sugar drinks that was that met with widespread protests. And that's one of the problems. I mean, if you look at different areas of Mer America, there's a very different type of cultures. In Mer many places, there's the idea that people should be free to do whatever they want. Whereas in some small areas, there's the idea that people need to take more responsibility, that the state needs to take responsibilities. And trying to get these two, two different groups to work together under one system is going to be very difficult. Because let's say we have universal health care. If we continue down this road in, in the US with, um, with the idea that people can do whatever they want in terms of health, so there's no, not much emphasis on exercise, on eating healthy without uh, ta taxes or other uh, nudges away from unhealthy habits, you're going to have a service that's essentially taking care of unhealthy people. And that's, of course, not really fair to the average taxpayer. And this sort of divide, this cultural divide in the US is probably one of the greatest reasons why there hasn't been a serious discussion on meaningful healthcare solutions. So I think Solomon brought up an interesting notion of a cultural divide in uh, amongst Americans uh, when we're talking about healthcare. But I think we can really just admit that the healthcare situation in the United States is quite unique and it is extremely problematic. As Anand pointed out at the start, the basic premise of which American healthcare is based on, in my opinion, is flawed. Uh, in my country, in Ireland, within within the European Union, uh, we have so the the two system policy where whereby private insurance can coexist with uh, public health uh, in with, with, with public health options too uh, that is quite problematic especially when you look at hospitals and the the government tends to pay a lot more towards the private health in, than the public which is quite bizarre because the the state rents a lot and a lot of infrastructure from private healthcare uh, providers it it is just problematic in and from the outset uh, so i think honing in on the cultural divide where else there is, seems to be a somewhat divide amongst americans is the best way to do immigration now both candidates have very different approaches to immigration joe biden he goes down the route of you know america is built on immigrants and he really just wants to get as many immigrants in as possible and that's what i perceive joe biden's immigration policy to be now when you when we contrast that to donald trump who is taking a much more uh, american first stance he, he you know he, he had a national emergency in november of 2018 to build the wall and spelled spent really uh, billions on the wall his approach to immigration is more controlled and it is a lot more limited so it's interesting to see what people think on the two candidates approach i mean it the differences in immigration policy are only really to um solidify their voting base of course, Joe Biden wants more um, Hispanic immigrants in because Hispanics tend to are more likely to vote for the Democrat Party. Conversely, Trump doesn't want states like New Mexico and even in some um, measures, Texas, slipping from the Republican Party, which is where Hispanics tend to have a few more people living there. So realistically, it's mostly just pandering towards who's going to vote for them. Trump is, you know, white people are more propor are proportionally a lot more likely to vote for Trump compared to Biden. Conversely, Black and Hispanic voters are a lot more likely to vote for Biden than they are for Trump. 
it's really just pandering to their election basis and nothing more. I agree. And to really hammer that point in, I mean, statistics have literally shown that Obama, uh, with, of course, Biden as the vice president during his tenure, have deported more migrants than uh, Trump has during his administration. I think that, but yes, Biden is fair in uh, criticizing Trump over the wall, given that, yes, a lot of illegal immigration and illegal smuggling does happen through legal border checkpoints. But again, perception is everything. It's not so, the argument is not so much about the actual statistics and what's, what the candidates' policies really are, as is the, the general perception of the public, in which a lot of, especially Democrats, just label Trump as racist, everything he does as anti-immigrant, instead of actually looking at the substance within his policy. And that's, I, I definitely agree with Samuel on the idea that it's not so much as actual policy changes as much as pandering to the electorate. And to add on to Solomon's point, Obama spent billions of dollars on trying to build a border wall between the United States and Mexico. Obama also deported children. Obama invested in ICE. Obama invested in uh, and did not invest in a judicial system whereby kids have to go through a court proceeding without any understanding as to what is going on. Quite frankly, this is something that is on both sides of the house. And if anyone suggests that Joe Biden is going to be better on this issue, realistically, you've got to be kidding yourselves. It's just the media has a more negative opinion about Trump. Although Obama has taken a much, much stronger opinion on immigration, these weren't things that were highlighted during his presidency. We didn't really see headlines on, on his immigration stance as opposed to Trump. And this just shows how the media has a very... Um, coarse and harsh opinion on Trump. And it's absolutely fair to say that just because Biden um, is adopting a more friendly immigration policy right now, it doesn't mean that he might not repeat what Obama has done. It's To be fair, both of them have very selfish um, perspectives on immigration. It's not something that is, to be fair, um, it's, it's, it can be in many ways similar. It's just to be fair, Trump is being more realistic, but Biden could be in a position where it could change in, over the years. You know, I have a huge, I'm, look, I'm from the right. And one of the big problems and one of the things that I get really frustrated, uh, particularly with the left, is the hypocrisy of the left um, that is seen um, and the rank hypocrisy. They are the first ones to go on and on about Trump's being, Trump being a racist, yet they refuse to look at the issues inside their own house. The fact that Obama and Biden have both spent billions upon this, that Biden's voting record is not great when it comes to Hispanics. Um, the fact that they're refusing to look at this issue inside their own house just reinforces to me why I have issues and why I don't have a lot of time for left-wing politics. As a member of the left, I would definitely argue that that is a valid point and that a lot of the time hypocrisy is not called out in our own faction of the political sphere. However, I would say that Donald Trump does take an excessive amount of time to put especially xenophobia at the front of his presentation of these ideas. And on the while that can be attributed to him appealing and pandering to his voter base, it is still a very obvious presentation of thoughts, opinions, and ideals that could center around xenophobia and racism. You know, Samuel, I do agree with you that the left has been hypocritical in the respects that uh, they haven't taken a hard stance on immigration and they haven't done all of these things for Hispanics that would benefit them. Um, but I do think that for the left right now, it's Trump 
versus not Trump. And at this point for them, anything that's not Trump is better. And the media has been completely unfair to Trump in that respect. You know, the Obama administration was horrible to immigrants, but I do think that Biden's plan for immigration, which would, you know, reverse a lot of Trump's actions, um, I think that it's good that um, he's at least pandering to the left and trying to get their support because a lot of the issues that Biden has spoken on, he doesn't really fall in line with um, the entirety of the left, especially with the supposedly woke liberals who um, harp on tr like Trump's being racist. Um, I think that we can all agree that, you know, maybe Trump hasn't had the best uh, stance on immigration, you know, but with the border wall literally cutting into sacred land um, over there. Um, but we can agree that Trump's focus on immigration has brought it back into the spotlight. And now he's forcing the Democrats to talk about it and to address it, which I do think is a good thing. If you look at Joe Biden's past record, he was the vice president during Trump. Obama's presidency. And the, it's very important to keep in mind that what are the chances that he won't repeat the same things when he's president? It's a very clear picture. Like, although we know that the media has had a very negative opinion about Trump, these things could repeat during Joe Biden's presidency. And it's important to keep in mind that the media won't highlight this. Like, if you look at what has happened during Obama's presidency, it wasn't really the best to be, let's be fair, it wasn't really the best. But then the media didn't really portray it that way. And it was mostly on a more positive lens. That's something to keep in mind how unfair the media has been towards Trump and how they are more, if, if I were to put it in, in, in words, how they are more pro-democratic and they put more emphasis and they try to highlight how the Democrats have been better off compared to Trump. You know, and um, I think that in the past year, the left has actually become a bit more accountable in that respect. And I think that we're going to see that with Biden possibly choosing a very progressive vice president. And we're going to see that the left is going to, you know, try to hold itself to the standards that holds the right. You know, we see that um, for um, recently, um, a lot of progressives have swept the nation and taken office. Um, and we're starting to see a shift in the left, right? Um, whether this will end in a fallout, I'm not sure. But I do think that it's interesting that um, Trump has, you know, brought this to the forefront. Um, I do think that's interesting that Trump has brought this to the forefront and that the left is starting to make amends. Um, I think that one of the things that the left has done well this past year is bring progress progressives back out and they're starting to challenge the status quo which is really refreshing to see i'm going to agree with you on that point sophia i think the the democratic party really has betrayed some of its strongest supporters in the sense that they chose a moderate who has in the past had a had a, a very checkered voting experience i mean some people call it bipartisanism in actuality many even moderate democ uh, democratic institutions are have been and are frustrated by Biden's sort of shifty behavior. I mean, his, his tenure um, as a Senate leader has basically been just building personal connections and relationships. And he has gone so far as to support certain Republican candidates over 
democratic ones in in local state and state elections and that's very h- hard to justify to um the stronger de- democratic supporters in trying to achieve consensus i think the democratic party really has betrayed their core voting group and Certainly, the way I see it, there's going to be a split along uh, in the party where you've got the the more moderates and and um, ambivalent individuals following Biden, whereas there is the core group of Democratic believers and Democrats who split off to form a new party where they can choose a candidate that really represents them. Because frankly, I don't think having a vice president who uh, supposedly represents um, the more Democra- uh, Democratic Party elements is sufficient. I mean, in Obama's case, it was using Biden as part of the establishment to appeal appeal to the big industry. And that was sort of acceptable because Biden was more in the shadows, whereas Obama was the figurehead, the person to appeal to the people. When you've got Biden, who's a known establishmentist, who has very dubious connections to, the, um, to financial and political institutions, that becomes very hard to justify to a lot of Democratic voters. And certainly, I, I have read uh, about Democrats who have said they will not vote for Biden, or perhaps they will even vote for Trump just to sort of um, have a scorched earth policy and force uh, the Democratic National Committee to reform. I do agree that the left has probably failed in choosing a moderate candidate that doesn't represent all of the left and that they've really alienated a lot of their support base. But I do think that that's because the establishment hasn't really begun to reform yet, which is why I'm hoping to see more candidates like Andrew Yang in the 2024 election and possibly get that Democratic nomination. Um, I do agree that the left can do a lot of things better, especially when you look at the rhetoric against Trump and how they're not really focusing on policy anymore. But I think that for them right now, the most important thing is to get their feet back on the ground. Sophia, you mentioned earlier the notion of transparency and you hailed that the left are becoming increasingly transparent. Now, I would have to disagree with you uh, on that front. And I wanted to ask you, what, what what is your opinion on Joe Biden and his sexual assault scandal, which really kind of didn't really shake the media a lot? I was actually... I myself was quite surprised how little media attention that got, um, which was actually quite a big, um, quite a big thing back at the start of, of May. Obviously, with the Black Lives Matter movement, which obviously is more important, that kind of dominated the news. But when we look up back to Donald Trump's uh, presidency and a lot of the uh, what, what with Stormy Daniels and a lot, you know, that that was in the that, that was that was persistently in the news for weeks on end. And now this just draws into just how polarizing American news um, and American media is. And, and my opinions on it, I can get into in a, a, a different podcast, but I think it's utterly ridiculous. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think on sort of Joe Biden and his history of sexual assault, as well as his voter history of voting, I believe someone mentioned it earlier, voting for um, a more anti-Hispanic uh, voting uh, history, as well as when we look at um, his his voting history on when, when he was a senator on, 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 on black Americans in schools where they should be screened before going into schools, as well as the stop and frisk policy, which was introduced in New York City. 
and there's a lot of um a lot of scandals which are, in my opinion are associated with Joe Biden aren't really being placed in the in the news. So I just wanted I'm interested in seeing how you believe the notion of transparency which you brought forward as a hallmark of the of the left is actually true considering um Joe Biden and his most recent sexual assault scandal. You know, Matthew, I really was disappointed that the media didn't cover Joe Biden's sexual assault scandals more. I really was hoping to see more change on that side. But um, in addition to, you know, Ukraine and um, ties to Chinese oil companies, I really was disappointed to see that. And I think that for the older uh, voters, um, that hasn't been as much of an issue. Whereas for younger voters, you know, my generation, um, they care a lot about issues like that. And we're going to see as more people are able to vote and as the establishment starts to split, that the left is going to hold itself more accountable. And I do think that there is starting to become more transparency. I don't think that there's a lot right now, but I think that there's starting to be a shift towards that direction, which is really nice to see. On the subject of accountability, I also feel like we can look at the 1994 crime bill, which was partially responsible for much of the issues in mass incarceration that we see today and the unfair treatment of Black Americans when it comes to the criminal justice system. I feel like that is something that Biden has received a merited and fair amount of criticism for, especially in the wake of recent tensions following the death of George Floyd. I think it is something that people, when it comes to sexual assault, and the crime bill, many Democrats are glossing over this fact due to the fact they don't want Trump to win again. And I personally think that all public officials should be called out regardless of the advantageous nature of an election. I think there's a couple of elements to this. So first, I think the Democrat Party actually did their best job at this when they were fighting amongst themselves. Indeed, um, Michael Bloomberg's campaign was really killed on... Elizabeth Warren questioning the use of non-disclosure agreements by former female staffers for Michael Bloomberg. And that really was probably the catalyst for the end of the Bloomberg campaign, which in my personal mind, thank God, because the last thing that we need was a presidential campaign, which was just a New York um, pissing contest. So in that respect, they've been really great on and They were good on that. However, we also then have on the flip side, and then I think it comes back to a lot of the sentiments we've made about the media, is that Joe Biden's sexual assault allegations got you know, a couple of weeks of airtime. We compare that to obviously Stormy Daniels, which you've mentioned, Matthew, um, but also compare that to the Hollywood tapes, um, which were part of the 2016 election. Um, but also, if we even want to extend to other um, things, Trump appointees, Brett Kavanaugh um, is probably, or Justice Kavanaugh is probably the best example of that. I think in terms of kind of holding people accountable, I think that this is something that Republican Party should really consider doing for strategy purposes is encouraging is that young people and Sophia, you've explicitly mentioned that, um, and Caroline, I think you've implied it, have been disappointed with how the Democrat Party has handled it. And I think a lot of young people are quite a bit disillusioned um, with how the Democrat Party has handled this. If the Republicans were smart about this, they would actually set up a campaign or a strategy to convince these young people to vote for the Green candidate, Howie Hawkins. Um, and the Green candidate is also the socialist uh, candidate. Uh, so it kind of fits in with the kind of, with their more left-wing progressive verging on socialist agenda that young woke liberals are 
alleging themselves to go to. The reason why Republican strategists should focus on this um, and trying to push them to do that is because of the first-past-the-post system that exists in the United States because that will take votes away from Joe Biden and make Trump more electable in a number of different states where he might have previously been run out and get Trump and a win on the Electoral College despite a minority of people voting for him. I have no disagreements with the political political strategy in that sense. I mean, that is sound. But I think the greater issue is that Biden is he's not really able to motivate the people who came out for Obama in 2012 and 2008, but didn't come out for Clinton in 2016. He just doesn't have that sort of air and the ability to really ignite um, the democratic voting base in the same way that Trump is able to galvanize uh, the, the Republicans. And I think that's one of the greatest flaws of Biden as sort of the figurehead of the Democratic Party. Because as great as an administrator perhaps he might be, he isn't really good as a figurehead. I mean, he stutters often in speeches, and that has been preyed upon by other Demo Democratic nominees uh, bef during the Democratic presidential debates. And certainly, up to this point, his records haven't been that um, that targeted upon. But once Trump starts really focusing on um, targeting Biden, you're going to see a very dirty campaign, certainly. And I just don't see how Biden's going to be able to defend himself against that. I think we're going down the route of comparing the individual and seeing who is more presidential. Now, I have my reservations about which candidate has the better leadership skills and fits the more presidential uh, model of which we've seen. So I'm interested to see what people think of comparing the two the two candidates as as individuals, leaving whoever whoever which, which vice president they might have aside, as well as their individuals. Who is most? Who is more presidential when we compare Joe Biden to Donald Trump? Yes, it's important to keep in mind that Joe Biden really represents an old school Democrat. But when you look at Trump, he has brought in certain elements that weren't really seen before, like standing up to China. His ideas might seem, in many opinion, in many ways, a little extreme, but they have brought in a, a change, and that's what the U.S. wants. They want they wants change. And Joe Biden isn't really bringing that. Like, for instance, he's not able to captivate a lot of the young voters that we see. And if you look at how Trump was able to captivate blue-collar workers in the 2016 election, that's what helped him get the win that he needed. And that's and that's how the it's. If you look at what's going to happen right now, this is how the stance is going. Trump will continue to get supporters, but Biden might not be able to convince that many people simply because of his idea of being too old school and the media isn't really helping this in any way the more negativity that you see with trump and the media the more you could see a lot of people being convinced that the media isn't completely fair and it isn't portraying the right elements for both candidates i think one area which biden really could capitalize on is the american people's frustration at partisan partisanization and partisan deadlock i mean Biden do, admittedly does have a history of working across the aisles. During uh, the 2008, he, he convinced three Republicans across the aisle to vote in favor of the relief packages. And if he can sort of bring this idea of returning polit politics to the good old days before there was deadlock on everything along partisan lines, I think he might have a case against Trump. But this is Trump we're talking about. He has galvanized his support and really radicalized much of the Republican voter base. And while this, in theory, is a good strategy, I don't see Biden as the person to be able to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah, look, Solomon, I think 
that's a very aspirational view. Um, the idea of this bipartisanship really died in the 2010 midterms with the rise of the Tea Party. And one of the things that the Tea Party did was um, they pre-selected against a whole, well, they got a whole bunch of people who had history of bipartisanship and made sure that they were not pre-selected for or didn't win their primaries for the general election. They labelled them a rhino, a Republican in name only. And that's what really killed, I think, a lot of this bipartisanship. And we're starting to see that with the left um, as well, with the rise of candidates such as Alexandra Oscarzio-Cortez, who was able to come in as a bit of an insurgent candidate. Uh, and obviously with the rise of Bernie Sanders' candidacy, where he got you know, close to the nomination in 2016. So... I think that era of bipartisanship is all but over, quite frankly, and Joe Biden will not fix it, and no Democrat can really fix it. I think going back to the concept of which of these candidates is more presidential, I think we need to take into account that our entire concept of American presidentiality is something that is changing as Gen Z becomes a larger influence in American politics with 4 million high school seniors turning 18 and being able to vote in the next general election. Uh, the American presidency, I guess, has been long dominated by the view of a typically older white man. But as you said, Samuel, as we're seeing more insurgent candidates, more radical thinkers on both sides come into the party, we're going to see new faces. And Biden really is the last of these old school Democrats. And I think along with that generation of Republicans, Republicans and Democrats dying out, we're going to see a new face of what it, American leadership and American presidentiality from that. I think that in the context of this year's elections, how presidential either of the candidates are doesn't really matter. You know, um, a poll came out um, just the other day showing that Biden is leading Trump by um, many points in six battleground states, even though he's not very presidential and even though he doesn't really fit this image of a traditional president. I don't think that... Um, the image of a president that we have in our minds, I don't think that that changing will have too large of an effect. I do think that um, more radical thinkers um, coming into the fray is a wonderful thing, but I don't think that that'll change our perception of what um, a president should look like beyond how their skin color or gender, and even then playing identity politics, that's very dangerous because then you have people like Kamala Harris right, who tried to run an entire campaign based on that, and she completely lost, you know. She then blamed it on her, um, on America being racist or sexist, and that's an issue that we will be seeing in the future. I mean, even just looking back to the Clinton campaign in her book, she blamed women for voting for Trump, which is quite ironic considering she supports the freedom of women. And I but I think that assuming that politics will inherently change in America is very dangerous, given that with the Electoral College and, as Samuel mentioned, the first-past-the-post system, we will inevitably get bipartisanism. Of course, there is this sort of um, half-secret proposal where some states have, are trying to agree uh, to vote for the candidate with the majority population, uh, majority vote. But right now, they're still very far away. And 
again, as uh, Samuel mentioned, the, the political strategy that will make most sense will be, of course, to try and split the vote um, across the aisle. And for, inc uh, for rising candidates, they simply don't have the funds or the resources or the connections to be able to reach out nationwide. And, and uh, barring some large um, sort of uh, groundbreaking event in American politics, there isn't going to be a fundamental change in the system. Going back into the individual, now I'd have to disagree to some respects what Sophia mentioned about the public perception, because we've repeatedly seen with the election of Donald Trump in the first place, when he announced his campaign, the media were utterly did not count him as a candidate could be feasible for the presidential office at all. You know, a lot of things are yet to happen before the corona, but... but before the uh, the election in November. And one of those things are debates. And this is where I believe John, Joe Biden, his flaws as a leader will really come into play. Now, I have my reservations about Joe Biden and his ability to speak or really instill any motivation in, in anything but a stone. So I'm really interested to see how people will, when we're just comparing the individuals and not the, the administrations back behind them, because in my opinion, the two... Uh, do not really shape a lot of their policies that they put forward. And this is especially true for Joe Biden. Um, so I'm interested to see what people think when you compare the, the speaking skills, the leadership skills of both uh, of both candidates, which, which will really come to play when we see the online debates and they really the, the, the debates on 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 which are which are aired before the the election, which really do have an impact um, on voter decisions i mean for all of trump's flaws you can't really say he's not authentic i mean during the election he basically flaunted his wealth he denied alle uh, allegations whereas biden he's more moderate he's a traditionalist and frankly that doesn't really appeal to voters anymore and unless he radically changes the solutions that he's not going to be able to galvanize the uh, the voter base the same way as trump is able to it's not even so much about as about the policy decisions about his speaking ability as it's about the frustration of the people at the lack of authenticity and uh, at the establishment as a whole i mean trump uh like him or not he has changed america greatly with his uh, tax reforms and um sort of bring immigration to and china to the forefront of american politics like it or not, he, he has made great change. And for a lot of his voter base, that, that's that's something that Biden could never do as part of the establishment. They see him as part of the problem. And frankly, I doubt that Biden will be able to change or challenge this perception effectively. Yeah, Solomon, I completely agree with you that Trump has brought about great change. And I whether that's a good thing or bad thing for now, um, that's to be seen. But when we're talking about candidates um, and how eloquent they are, how great they are at speaking, you know, um, we don't even associate Trump with being president anymore. No one calls him President Trump, right? Um, but on the Democratic stage, we look at people like Andrew Yang, who's very well-spoken, very articulate, and very well-researched. And we see that he has been sidelined. Of course, he got surprisingly far in this election, right? Um, but we do see that he ended up being sidelined for a more moderate candidate like Biden, who isn't as, you know, um, well-researched on such issues and, 
you know, is being called Sleepy Joe. Um, I think that it's one of the issues that the Democratic Party will have to face in the future um, regarding their candidates and um, what they want to look what they want them to look like, you know. Um, again, these identity politics, we shouldn't be playing with them, um, but it'll have a small impact in the future. I mean, one of Biden's biggest defining characteristics of his campaign is literally not being Trump. And I think that if any politician's campaign is that I am not the other person, that's a fundamental problem because you won't get strong support. You only get people who are disillusioned with Trump. And that's simply not enough. We saw in 2016 that Democrats who were frustrated with Clinton uh, didn't vote or perhaps even voted for Trump. Notably, a, a large proportion of people who vote for Sanders actually vote for Trump instead of Clinton um, crossing the aisle. And I think that unless Biden can really shift his tone and his stances, which I don't see seeing as he is one of the most unauthentic characters that in the American political landscape. He's not going to be able to really win in that sense. The only way I can see him actually having a shot at winning would be if Trump saw, somehow screws up within the next few months and alienates a lot of his base. Solomon, I think that Biden, um, if he does win this election, which I'm not gonna sit here and defend him because I don't really support him, but if he does win the election, I don't think that'll be through his own efforts and through his own abilities. I think that if the Democratic Party does manage to come together and vote him into office, then it won't be due to him. It'll just be the Democratic Party tolerating him in favor of uh, Trump. And I do agree that that's a huge issue and that Trump has done exceedingly well in making the election all about him. Whereas when we talk about the Democratic Party, we talk about not just Biden, but we also talk about Bernie. We talk about Warren. We talk about all of these other figures. Whereas with the Republicans, we only talk about Trump, which I think Trump has done to his advantage really, really well. I think that Samuel mentioned this earlier, but splitting the vote on the left will give him a huge advantage in this year's elections. So I guess we've been talking a lot about which president really suits for office, comparing Donald Trump to, to Joe Biden. But another big part of any presidential uh, administration is the vice president. And now Joe Biden has, 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 has served as vice president under Barack Obama. We know that Mike Pence uh, has served as vice president under Donald Trump. However, both uh, vice presidential uh, seats are actually uh, are still in the ma- are still in the making. We've we've heard uh, Joe Biden announce that he wants a, a female vice president, but he has not really gone into men- much detail. And the, the important and a vice president seat is actually quite important in forming the policies and the ways in which a president will 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 serve uh during his term and whether or not mike pence when we look to donald trump will be presidential uh will 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 be the vice president that fact is very much up in the air um so we we don't really want to establish mike pence as the vice president because we we still do not know that so i'm interested to see why people think possibly a vice president for joe biden come in and which one they feel will be most appropriate 
Well, Matthew, I think that we can first um, cross off someone off from our list, and that's Kamala Harris. You know, back during the debates, we saw Kamala take many shots at Biden, and now that Biden has announced that he wants a female vice president, she's immediately become buddy-buddy with him, and she's trying to go for that vice presidency, and I think that that says a lot about her. Now, when we're talking about people of uh, color becoming vice president, especially African-American women, as I think Joe Biden would prefer to have, you know, to make himself look good on the ballot. When we're talking about that, I think that it is, again, um, unfortunate that we have to turn to that to get um, more Democrats to support him. But I also think that it's really bad to set a precedent like that. Um, you know, policy is far more important than um, someone's skin color or gender. And I think that the Democratic Party is going to have to deal with that at some point or another. Um, but I do think that um, it would be interesting to see who Joe Biden picks as vice president. What do you guys think about that? So I think this issue has really been galvanized on the Democrat side due to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I have heard some reports, uh, particularly by Politico, um, that are suggesting that Biden is being really pushed to consider not only a female, and obviously he said he's going to pick a female, but uh, someone who's Af an African-American female. So uh, I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think we can rule out Kamala Harris. Uh, Stacey Abrams is obviously another one that immediately comes to mind, although we do have to remember she actually hasn't won a major election. She was the loser of the Georgia governorship. Um, so, and I think if we go down that road, you're probably saying that those two would be kind of the leading candidates if Biden wants a female who is also an African-American. If we remove the skin colour element, then you obviously will be adding in uh, Elizabeth Warren. And indeed, some strategists have suggested Elizabeth Warren is critical to winning the election for Biden. I want to focus, though, on the Republican side. And something that I know I think is a little bit left of field is that I don't think Pence is prohibitive nominee for vice president. And the reason why I want to say that is that Trump's strategy has always been blame everyone but Trump, and that Trump has always been about trying to find someone else to be the scapegoat. Mike Pence has been heading up the Commission on Coronavirus. Mike Pence is inherently now going to be a very easy scapegoat for the Republican Party, for Trump and the Republican Party, to then blame the COVID-19 response on and whether that's been a poor COVID-19 response. Plus, in addition to the fact that it has been alleged that possibly um, Pence has not been entirely faithful to Trump, could mean that Pence isn't on the ticket in 2020. And then who do you replace? And I think someone that immediately comes to mind would be Nikki Haley, because then that immediately kind of negates the whole um, voting for a female into a senior office position, albeit a vice president argument that Joe Biden will push. Um, based upon who he's going to pick as his vice president, because then you've got a female in that person and someone who could theoretically be a contender, and he's already been touted as a contender for the 2024 presidential election on the Republican side. I think that would be an interesting strategy and I think could be quite a good strategy for the Trump administration. I think just to clear up some confusion, Donald Trump has stated that Mike Pence will be the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party. But I think I want to tie back to Stacey Abrams. I think something that I don't want to take too long touching on, but Stacey Abrams, since her failed uh, 
gubernatorial election, she has worked a lot when it comes to voter suppression and voter registration, which I think is an interesting policy angle that could be taken to the federal level. I absolutely agree with Samuel that Elizabeth Warren is a possible candidate. But just to keep in mind, I feel like the Democrats are also making are repeating mistakes that happened in the 2016 presidential election. Just um, to keep in mind, when Hillary Clinton was against Trump, she she it was it was stated that she was using the female card, that she was trying to rally more supporters because it would be stated that she would be the first female president in the United States. I feel like Joe Biden is also playing something similar that he will elect a female vice president. Just trying to label something of um, female or of color is just, it's unfair because to be fair, when you have a vice president, you look more at the policies than at gender or stats. And as mentioned, if, 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 if this is how things are going, it might not really bring in the rally and support that Joe Biden really needs. Caroline, I just want to quickly fact check you on the Pence issue. Um, most of the articles that have been discussed were late 2019. Uh, and indeed, there's still a lot of uh, commentary, particularly by um, media outlets such as CNN, about the fact that Pence might still be dumped uh, from the ticket. I think that it's not unreasonable to rule out um, that Pence won't be on the ticket in 2020. Uh, I think when we talk about uh, Mike Pence as a vice president, I I would think it's quite up in the air whether or not he will be or not. Now, we obviously, he heads the coronavirus task force and a possible strategy that Donald Trump may or may not impose is just shifting the blame to Mike Pence and then disillusioning himself with Mike Pence so that he can somewhat detract the bad move, moves he made during his, during his time president during the coronavirus and offset it to Mike Pence. And that is a way... Um, which I I'd see Donald Trump possibly doing. Um, but again, I think when we talk about a vice president, it is still very much up in the air. Uh, but who, which running mate Joe Biden may choose? Um, I still would not um, slam uh, Kamala Harris and for not being a running mate. She's seen a lot of traction, especially in California, where the establishment is, is very much pro-democratic. However, when we look at the scene in in California, they're a lot more wary of of Joe Biden because when we look to California, they were pushing a lot more for for the likes of Andrew Yang for for Bernie Sanders, who are a lot more radical, and Joe Biden really just sort of doesn't really fit in with their more proactive stance. Now, I wanted to finish up this this discussion by asking every guest the following question: If you are an American voter and you had to choose between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who would you vote for and why? Uh, possibly we'll start with Samuel. Yeah, I, I would say Trump. Um, and I don't say that with a great deal of enthusiasm. Um, as I said earlier, you've got Trump, you've got two options in this election. You've got an old school Democrat who has sexual harassment allegations against them, or you've got an old school Democrat that has sexual harassment allegations against them. It is the Klang and Kodos election, realistically. Um, however, it must be said that realistic that if you're running on a platform of I am not Trump, it's not a good platform. It doesn't actually speak to what policies you're going to do. And quite frankly, you're going to be engaging in a watered down version of more of the same. It's And look, for all the Trump, we had some disagreements on Trump's policy. Trump at least has really taken leadership on certain issues, particularly um, 
how America deals with China. And whilst you can disagree with some of the nuances of that, um, he has at least shown strong leadership on that and has shown at least a vision of what he want and wants America to become and how America is to act in the world compared to Biden, who has none of that vision. So I, I think for those reasons, I would say Trump in an uninspirational way. To be fair, this presidential election isn't between Trump and Biden. It's between a Trump and a non-Trump um, area. And if you look at Trump, he has put an America first strategy, which is really good for most Americans. And he has taken a lot of initiatives to help Americans and bring in America first. When you look at how he's dealt with China and about his deregulation policies. So definitely, if I, in my opinion, definitely be Trump because Biden as mentioned, he's very old school. And it's not like he's bringing anything on the table that is revolutionary or new. He's not bringing change that is something that Trump is, it's good or bad, people will disagree, but it is true that Trump has brought change and it's this change that most Americans really want. So for that reason, I'll go for Trump. Caroline? I would say that personally, while international issues are definitely pressing. I feel in the United States, there are also some domestic issues that need to be immediately attended to, especially with the question of Supreme Court justices and their ability to set how healthcare will look in the United States, how minority rights will look in the rest of the United States, and personally as a woman, how abortion will look in the rest of the United States following this very crucial election year. So I would have to vote for Biden on, I guess, settle for Biden, as many of my fellow Gen Zers are saying, settle for Biden in the fact that policy change can be made for some of the most vulnerable groups in the United States, domestic wise. Solomon? Well, as harsh as this sounds, I'm probably going to pull a burn Moscow to save Russia scenario, even if I was democratic, which I'm not, I'm a bit right-leaning, I would still vote for Trump just to force the Democrats to co uh, become more competitive and reform. The way I see it, the Democrats are going to keep competing when they see that, oh, we have the majority vote. Oh, it was very close. That can't continue. I mean, Trump's basically already reformed the Republican Party to the Trump party, similar to how Reagan did. And at this point, the only hope for a significant change in the political spectrum, realistically, will be a significant reform in the Democratic Party's processes. And if if people keep on supporting the Democrats and keep on making the vote, uh, the races close, then that's not going to happen. The only way you can really force change is to send a message to the establishment that the people are going to reject this. And in the way, you've got to burn the Democrats down to start anew. On the contrary, Solomon, actually, I think that even though Trump has started this change, Gen Z and the younger generations um, in general will pull the change through and ensure that there is something that changes. Uh, they're going to ensure that something shifts in the left. And while I can't, I can't say that I particularly support either candidate, really, um, I think that settling for Biden and seeing what he can do first, what changes he can make, um, will be all right. Not all right, but somewhat um, better 
than seeing what Trump does with another four years of attacking China um, and creating this Trump effect. Um, I think that having Biden um, in office, in addition to having all of these young people who are coming of age to vote and are far more politically active than in the past, uh, I think that that'll result in change, whether we like it or not. And I think that um, that's all right. And that's it for this week. Thank you to Samuel, Solomon, Sophia, Anam, as well as Caroline Kush for being part of this week. Stay up to date on this week podcast by following us on Twitter and on Instagram. If you want to be a guest on this week, follow us there and send us a message. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Thank you.